This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. Well, it is a fantastic privilege to be sitting here with Neil Powell, who is in London, but doesn't live in London. Where do you presently live, Neil? Thanks. It's really good to be here, Ben. Um, I live in Birmingham Excellent. right now. Yeah. And Neil, you have led, or are are you still leading? You have, you've become known for the Birmingham 2020 yeah. project. Now, could you just tell us a little about what that is? I'd love to. So I'm kind of still involved a little. So I'm still formally speaking a trustee, but uh, really my focus is now is now London. So uh, 2020 Birmingham began back in about 2009, began over a cup of coffee myself with a New Frontiers leader in Birmingham called Jonathan Bell. And we met to consider, could we do more together than we could do on our own? We'd never worked together. We'd never even actually talked about ministry together. We knew of each other. We were both involved in sort of studenty churches in the city, and we were both church planting churches. But we began to think maybe collaborative partnership between two different tribes, me, FIC, Jonathan, New Frontiers, might be best for multiplying churches across the city. And we formed a, a little group called 2020 Birmingham, and we put into our name the idea of what we were seeking to do, which was 20 new churches by the year 2020. And it was fair to say we really didn't know where those churches would come from, who would plant them. We probably could have found our way to seven or eight between the two churches, between my, my church and Jonathan over 10 years maybe. But we, we, we deliberately set ourselves something of what we might call a sort of a stretch target that would send us to bring in others and to work together to try and find and identify and recruit church planters for Birmingham. Excellent. That was in 2010, was it? Yeah, so so the idea was forming in 2009 mm-hmm. when uh, we both took a trip to New York to connect with City to City and to hear more about their vision for cities and gospel movements, city networks within global cities. And, mm-hmm. and so it began in that conversation really through Redeemer City to City, Mm. started in 2010. And by God's grace, by the year 2020, although fair to say not the best year for any of us, but by the year 2020, we had actually seen 20 new churches um, established in that time. And God just brought people to us in a remarkable way. So we helped an Ethiopian taxi driver start a church. We helped a Mexican asylum seeker who'd been converted from a gang culture in in Mexico and, and as a result had to flee the country because he left the gang. And he was planting in Birmingham a Spanish-speaking church, and we've helped an Indian couple who've come as missionaries, sort of reverse missionaries to Birmingham, and a whole range of others as well. And it's been thrilling just as God has brought people to us. So by forming this sort of little network of friends or this city movement, and by going public on it, people actually found their way to us. And some of them, I think, would have planted anyway. There were people who were coming to Birmingham saying, I think God has given me this vision or this call to plant a church. We helped a Romanian pastor who wanted to come to the UK. Knew there was lots in London, but thought, why not UK second city, Birmingham? And he just Googled, found us on the website, got in touch with us. So I think by having a public name and identity, an idea that we could share, it was interesting how God used that to connect us with people who probably would have planted, but just love the idea of being with a group of other 
like-minded planters within the city that we could share with them mm. our prayers, our lives, mm. something of our local knowledge of the city and our wisdom that we could train together, our mm. wives could support each other, all of this sort of thing as well. Yeah. It's yeah. been a lovely 10 years. That's beautiful. How wonderful that someone could be coming into a city, Google who's doing church planting and say, oh, we'd like to help you and, and we are about getting the gospel into this city. Yeah, so one of the church planters just put the Romanian couple up in his house for the first two months that they were in the country. He just literally stayed with one of the other planters until he could find his feet and uh, find somewhere to live and, and so on. Yeah. Oh, outstanding, outstanding yeah. stuff. And uh, you're moving to London mm-hmm. to start the London project, which is going to be learning from that. Now, but perhaps before we go on to that, uh, yourself, you originally from Wales, I believe, Correct. from South yes. Wales. Is this yes. right, Cardiff or Swansea? Or? Well, actually born in Newport. My family lived in a small place called Cumbran, just just a few miles away from Newport. But my mum's family in particular from Wales um, over generations. Mm-hmm. Her maiden name was Wynne, so a Wynne and a Powell mm-hmm. came. To- so we moved when we were when I was five to Birmingham because my dad took a job in, in Birmingham managing a news agency. He'd been a manager in South Wales and they asked him whether he'd moved to Birmingham. So he had no family there and all the family's still in, still in South Wales, so it's still that feels like home. And even as a small boy, when we were sent to school, we were sent on St David's Day wearing a little sort of fabric leak uh, pins to our jumpers just so that uh, all of our friends at school could sort of identify, spot the Welshman in their wow. midst. So that's my brother and I who was in the year above me at school. How was it you came to understand the gospel yourself? Yeah, thank you. I love uh, opportunities to share God's grace in uh, to me. So I brought up in a family which was God-fearing in the sense of there was no disputes that God was there, but there was no reality, there was no living faith in the family home, just occasional church attendance. But at 18, I, I came to London, I came to do a business and banking degree. My my goal was to make money, and that was it. Ideally, be a millionaire by 30, and then just the world was my oyster. That was the thought. So let's do business, let's do banking, has come to London. That was, that was the thinking. Moved into a hall of residence in Bethnal Green, And one of the other guys in the Hall of Residence had asked the chaplaincy whether they might help him connect with other believers in the Hall of Residence because there wasn't a Christian group there. And uh, back in the day, this dates us now, there was no GDPR. And the chaplain said, well, we've got six people who've signed up for information about the chaplaincy at the Freshers' Fair. So he took those six names and flat numbers and just decided to knock doors and to say, hi, my name is Mike. I'm a Christian. I wonder whether you found a church. I'm going on Sunday to this church. Would you like to come with me? Mm. So I had just, uh, at the Freshers' Fair, just scribbled my name down on a whole range of stuff, but happened to put my name on the chaplaincy mailing list because I would have said I was a God-fearer. But, you know, if that guy had not knocked my door, if he hadn't taken that initiative, nothing would have happened. There was Mm. no instinct within me to seek God Mm. or to even visit a church in London. Mm. That would not have happened. And I look back now at that sort of defining moment in my life when he knocked my door. And we were were actually on the same degree course. We were both doing business with banking, so we sort of recognised each other. And um, he said, I'm going on Sunday, do you want to come? And he (laughs) took me to a, a large Anglican church in the city of London. Some people will know it. It's called St. Helens Bishopsgate. Dick Lucas was still very much preaching and leading that church at the time with Hugh Palmer. And I'd never seen anything like it. What are hundreds of people doing in church? And lots of young people, students and 
and others and just immediately was sort of intrigued and drawn to it, just in drawn to what I was hearing, the Bible being opened, meeting Jesus in the scriptures. Mm. And then my friends, including this guy, Mike, they decided to join the midweek Bible study thing for students and others, which was called Remark Learn. And I thought, well, if you're doing it, I'll come with you. And I was plonked into a Bible study group, never been into a Bible study group in my life. I just sat in silence. I didn't try and answer any of the questions. Was slightly bemused by people all praying at the end. Didn't know what to do. They just stayed <laughs> silent. And I think no one knew anything about me because I was just didn't say anything. So was I just introverted? Actually, no. I just didn't know what was going on. But I kept going back. And as we worked our way through Mark's Gospel, probably within the space of about eight weeks, through going on Sunday and going midweek and conversations with my friends in the halls, came, came to a, a living faith. Mm. in in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so then four years as a student, just immersed in a church where I had good friends, amazing sort of Bible teaching. At the time, Richard Cunningham was the student worker and um, he was introducing me to Francis Schaeffer and to the thinking at Labrie and apologetics and so on. I look back now and think what an extraordinary privilege. Mm. So you were there with, with Richard Cunningham, who at that time was he leading UCCF? No, so he was the student worker at the church. So I was a student representative on the UCCF board. And then when uh, Richard applied and took a job with UCCF, not not the head job that he has now, but I actually interviewed him as a, as a student for his job. So he's my student <laughs> leader at St. Helens, and I was interviewing him for his UCCF job, which was a lot of fun. Oh, bless um, but yeah, so he then went to work for UCCF, and he, he phoned me and said, what are you doing? Come and join us. And there was a job in Birmingham. So that's what my wife and I, so I'd been converted in London. Jane, my wife, is a Londoner. She had been at St. Helens as a student as well. Her family's still there to, to, the, to this day. Um, but uh, our last day in London was our wedding day, and we were married in London, then moved to Birmingham where I worked for UCCF, and she, as a, as a silversmith, worked in the jewellery quarter in Birmingham and, and did that for many years before, ch- uh, before children came along. Mm-hmm. So UCCF in Birmingham for four years, and um, that's what led to us, um, I say us because it was two other people along with me, becoming accidental and reluctant church planters. And who were those other two? So a guy called John Stevens, who now uh, heads up a, a FIEC, so would be known to many of us, mm-hmm. all six foot seven of him. <laughs> um, and then Hugh Thompson was a surgeon, a consultant surgeon at a hospital in Birmingham. And we'd each been converted as students in university contexts, found ourselves in Birmingham. I was working with students for UCCF. John was the deputy head of the law school. Hugh was working as a, as a surgeon. And um, we'd come to Birmingham expecting just for, to find, ideally, a choice of good churches to sort of get plugged into. But actually, there was surprisingly little there. There were a number of uh, more lively, charismatic churches, which probably weren't going to be for us. And then there were a number of smaller, faithful churches that were just struggling to relate to modern world and, and modern life, but lovely people. And in the end, we thought maybe the only way we're going to to see a disciple-making church that was contemporary with an outward focus that would appeal to students and, and others within the city is if we tried to start one ourselves. So we didn't know what we were doing. David Jackman gave us quite a bit of encouragement and advice and help, but there were no church planting manuals. There was nothing by way of training. We just had a great God. We knew what 
Bible ministry looked like and we thought we can have a go. And in a city of a million, without a lot there at the time, lots now, by the way, but back then, sort of 30 years ago, not so much. Um, uh, sorry, 20 years ago. Um, we just had a go and, and God brought people to us. A number of people saying, oh, I've been waiting for for a church like this to be to be established here. And because three of us were leading it together, I think it kept us from making silly mistakes. And we co-pastored for 10 years together from 99 to 2009. And then John went to take his role with, with uh, FIEC. And I've continued there for, for until really until just the last year when I stepped mm. down mm. to take on the London project. Mm. Now, can you remember in the early stages when you were just a little nucleus and people were joining, what were things perhaps which you had already expected, which did happen, but things that you didn't expect, which happened and were valuable or were not? Yeah, I, I do genuinely think, you know, God gave the growth. It was word of mouth. It was lovely to see. It was mainly, I would say, Christians who had felt starved of good Bible teaching, mm-hmm. perhaps found themselves in a city like Birmingham for work reasons, but just thinking, I love God's word and I just need it opened and taught. And in many ways, I think, do you know, anyone could have gone and done it if they'd really sought to just bring God's word to his people. Mm. And that's in one wow. sense what we did and nothing more. Mm. Um but we were outward focused and I think we always had a heart for people to feel comfortable and confident to bring their friends. So it was always, look, this church is, is not just for you. We want it to be a great place for you to bring your friends. So my vision was every time I preached, I wanted people to think, I wish that guy from the office could have heard that. Wow. Or I really wish my, my friend at uni would come because I just know that he needs to hear these things. Ah. Um, so I think that desire to be, I don't think we chased relevance. In many ways, we were quite a traditional model of the way we structured our services. But we thought hard about how to engage hearts and minds mm. of people who are outside the church and for whom this would be new. And we tried to sort of build that bridge between God's word and, and, and their world. Mm. So we would sometimes do things a little differently. So we hired a function room in a pub. And on Sunday evenings, once a month, we'd do an apologetic question uh, around pizza and, and a beer. And that was popular. And that became a bit of a gateway. People came to that first and then found their way into the church. But I think what we could do and did see in terms of fruit more and what surprised us more than anything else was that we were able to raise up a generation of leaders. And that was just, I think, because we were small we were influencing not through formal programs, but just life on life. So just regularly meeting and reading the Bible. Wow. Um, with with students, for example, and then discipling them and then having an opportunity for them to do a year in the church when, when they graduated. Mm. But because we were small, we were highly relational. Mm-hmm. And I think they that you know, we say, you know, it's caught as much as it is as it is taught. And I think that was true. So it was very interesting. We definitely saw more people, more leaders raised up into long-term ministry at home and overseas. We saw more in the first 10 years than we did in the second 10 years, even though we had greater staff numbers and we had more people attending in the second 10 years. We were just very involved in the lives of lots of young people in those first 10. And I look back with very fond memories, and, and many of them have gone on to, to, to be leaders of churches or have gone on to cross-cultural mission or have gone um, to to teach in Bible colleges and and the like, and to write books, and 
you know, in many ways to do far more than we than we've done. And um, I look back and say, how did that happen? I don't know. <laughs> and I think it, I genuinely think, you know, we were in their lives um, in a real way, and mm-hmm. um, and and that had an impact upon them in a way we just weren't aware of. Actually, I think. That's so awesome. um, the I the, the need to be disciple making. I think is is what we saw, even as we were church building. Well, this like, yeah, yeah, this is it. You're and also you're describing. Well, what happened to you? Someone just brought you along. Yeah. <laughs> and said, "Would you like to come along?" And then people invested into you. Okay. Yeah. And then you went and said, "Well, that's what you do. It's normal." Yeah. And you're. I like the way you're saying well, anyone could have done this. <laughs> and uh, Jolly C.S. Lewis says, "Anything that isn't eternal." is eternally out of date. Mm. So while you're not seeking relevance, if you're preaching the beauty of someone who transcendently is glorious and satisfying, well... Yeah, and my experience, either visiting Redeemer Church in New York, which I have, of course, on many occasions, the, tr- the, the services are very traditional, actually. Mm. Um, yes. And then they at St. Helens, yes. you know, there was nothing. There was no light show or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. or, or, or anything else. It was... But I took my friends all the time. Well, there we are. It's my ambition to take them as often as I could, <laughs> um, and uh, and and a number did come to come to faith. Some after many years. In fact, one it took twenty years after first taking him to St. St. Helens as students for him to find his way to Christ. Fascinating. So I touched a little on church history mm-hmm. there. Who have been people in church history who have provoked and encouraged you? Well, um, I did a master's in historical theology, but I'm not a historian. I stumbled into that degree. It was through Westminster Theological Seminary and run at what then was London Theological Seminary, now London Seminary. So people like Carl Truman and others would, would fly in from Westminster, come and teach an intense week on Martin Luther. So I did, I did a master's in historical theology, and that was, that was terrific. I, I really had an opportunity to meet some friends, shall we say, mm. from church history. Mm. And I did my thesis on a, a man that hardly anyone has ever heard of. His name is Nathaniel Dimmock. He's referenced by John Stott in The Cross of Christ. He was a Victorian evangelical Anglican who lived at a time when the Tractarians had really taken the ground and many formerly evangelical churches and ministries had been replaced by Anglo-Catholicism. And also Enlightenment thinking and liberalism had swept through the church as well. And and evangelicalism, in one sense, had been attacked by ritualism and by rationalism at the same time and was small. So he lived at a time when evangelical was fighting a rearguard action. And so he's a footnote in church history. But he was a saintly controversialist who contended for the faith. It was Packer who called him a saintly controversialist because he stood the ground on evangelical theology within the Church of England and defended it in many, many writings. And I looked in particular at a book on the atonement that that he wrote. What I learned from him, as I say, is that sometimes the great heroes of the faith are footnotes. They're forgotten. Wow. But we'll meet them in glory and we'll 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 they will receive their reward in full for contending for the faith at a time when uh, evangelicalism was in the decline and, and they were largely forgotten. So, but he so he stood, he stood for the Lord Jesus at a time when it was unpopular to do so. But he did so with great humility, and he was a generous man as much as he could be. So I like Packer's phrase, uh, saintly controversialist. Mm. And I think wherever we find ourselves in disagreement with others, 
um, by our example, we want to demonstrate generosity, love, oh. humility. And he did that in the way he wrote. So you don't find diatribe, you don't find personal attack. You find a man who's pleading with people to look again at the scriptures and to discover the truth, particularly on penal substitutionary atonement, for example, which was um, which was so much under attack when he was writing. Um, so he was a great uh, a, a great man, but a but a forgotten he's a forgotten man. And then, as I look to London and the London Project, which I know we're going to talk about in a bit, I've I've sort of returned to Spurgeon a little bit because what I, what's on my heart for London in many ways I think was something that we saw in Spurgeon's time. And so I was sort of saying, well, God has done it before in London. Why not again? So we look at Spurgeon, we think of him as a great Reformed theologian, Calvinist, preacher, the Prince of Preachers, and so on. And maybe some people have heard of him as a church planter, although not many, actually, but he planted oh so many churches across London, but a trainer of preachers and so on. Um, but he was also an extraordinary man of the people who loved London. Mm. And wherever he saw need, he he had compassion. Yes. And so he was a great social activist. Mm. And along with uh, Shaftesbury, they worked together in many yeah. ways. Yes. And the, the number of societies um, that he established runs into dozens and dozens um, across those years, including obviously the establishment of, of orphanages and uh, other projects. So as I think of what, of how the church can serve London, of course it is through the faithful preaching of the gospel, and of course it is through the multiplication of churches, but also um, to demonstrate the love of Christ in the way that Spurgeon sought to. So I've enjoyed yes. Spurgeon more recently in the, in the round, and I'm appealing to people to just look again at the man and his life as well as his pulpit ministry mm. and say, well, if he could find yes. room for, for, for social reform, if he thought a reading of scripture meant compassion, love and mercy, yeah. and um, uh, uh, wherever the need was, he would meet it, Amen. then we can do the same today. Yes, they say in his time that uh, people would say, if the Metropolitan Tabernacle was a close, London would mourn. Because they would educate, feed, house. They they, they had an, a massive impact. But then, of course, the implications of that were, in a sense, it kind of shamed the establishment into, well, maybe we should do some of these. Or maybe those things are good. I think if we go to some places where the gospel hasn't reached, some of the things which they did are not considered good. Mm-hmm. But Spurgeon said, "This is what the gospel looks like." Yes, and you see the application. Yes, and yes, as we go, if you go through London and look, go into an old Baptist church, you are very likely to see a plaque or something saying Spurgeon started this. Yes, or was involved in this. That, that, that is the case across London, but the hands and feet of that message have been so, uh, the, salt and light. Yeah, uh, indeed, salt and light is exactly what I what I think of as I think of Spurgeon, and you know, as people are cynical, sceptical about religion. There may be a little room for spirituality, but not organized religion. What good can come of it? In this kind of a culture, a lot of people are saying, show me the difference that it makes. You know, Man. Tell me that it's true, of course. Reason with me from the scriptures, but show me the difference that it yes. makes. And, yes. and here is an opportunity. And I like Spurgeon as a as as a man who was willing to collaborate mm. with others. So we talked about Shaftesbury and their sort of friendship. And their partnership, but you know, as I look to London now, I think 
it's time for the church to really come together. Amen. Anyway. And um, well, that brings me on to my yeah. next question, which is, what are you up to now? And you're moving to London. Yes. Uh, the the London project yes. is what you're starting in London. So can you tell us a little about that? I'd love to. So we planted in 99, five years in, literally on our fifth birthday, a man called Al Bath came to visit the church. Now, I'd met him at EMA few months earlier in a coffee queue and we got chatting and he said oh i work for redeemer city city tim keller's church planting thing and um i'm interested in urban church planting can i come and visit birmingham and see what you're doing because i said to him Look, we've just planted a few years ago so he, he came on our fit for our fifth anniversary service and joined us and as a result of that in 2004 he started to invite myself and john and hugh to to come to to New York to meet other urban church planters from around the world where they would provide inspiration and Tim Keller would do some training and teaching but we'd hear from global voices as well and in the end as uh, as John Hugh and I talked about it it seemed appropriate for me to be the one that went so I sort of went on behalf of City Church and kind of what we now see in Centre Church I started to receive as I visited and heard Tim teach, and then sometimes he would come to the UK and this kind of thing. So Centre Church hadn't been written back then, but the DNA of gospel centrality and gospel renewal and the gospel for the whole of life, so the gospel at the heart of everything, but then the city and the place of the city and ministry within the city, and then movement. What does it mean to work in partnership and collaboratively for the good of the city? So gospel and city and movement being the sort of the three notes or themes that are at the heart of this sort of ministry. And so I began to receive this great training, but through it, a real vision for cities and what God might do through the gospel and through gospel partnership. So that's really why 2020 happened. So it was because of what I was receiving through this partnership with New York and Redeemer Church. The vision for 2020 was established. And that was quite a a small scale project because I was a church pastor you know, I was full-time pastoring a church, planting some daughter churches, giving a little bit of time to try to get these 20 new churches started along with Jonathan Bell. But the London project is an altogether different scale of ambition in a sense because what City to City said is, would I consider coming to do something of what we did in Birmingham but in London and in a full-time capacity? So it would be my main thing rather than 10% of my time, which it had been in Birmingham. Mm. So the London project is something that I'm giving myself to fully. And I think what we say we're here to do is to serve the local church. So we're here to, to help see churches started, to serve and to strengthen healthy gospel churches. So sometimes people say, are you, a, are you another sort of network? And I think our answer is not really. We see ourselves as an organisation that seeks to serve existing networks and to serve local churches so to use an illustration that a friend of mine uses we're not here to start new fires we're here to bring fuel to existing fires so we're here to say where is God at work in the city and to talk to those leaders and say is there something that we could offer that might help you in your ministry here in London so we're working a lot with diaspora churches in London right now. Many of them are first generation churches where the worship and the ministry is in the mother tongue from the sending nation. So that might be a, 
a Spanish-speaking church or a Brazilian-Portuguese-speaking church or a Ghanaian church, something like that. Mm. And we're trying to work with leaders there to say, how can we help you be a London church? Is there anything that we could do as you seek to make that transition from being really just um, an outpost of your home country in in this global city mm-hmm. to now being a church that's a London church that's seeking to reach London. Wow. And many of those leaders are saying, that's what we know we need to be doing now. Mm-hmm. So we've established ourselves, and but, but our vision is to be a multi-ethnic church, mm-hmm. is a church for London. And so a lot of thought is going into, can we work to help them think about the city? Can we help them to be perhaps at times a little bit more gospel-centered in their ministry? Can we help bring them into partnership with other like-minded churches through collaboration Mm. as well? So that's really what I'm giving myself to. I'm not alone in this. There's a team Mm. that are working on this project. So some people know Gurma Bishaw, who's an Ethiopian pastor and uh, planter in the city, who's now working as a catalyst with Diaspora Churches for the London Project, and Caroline Miller, who's formerly with London City Mission, is giving some time to us. Dan Strange is also with us. Some know him through his writing and his time at Oak Hill. And um, we're working with a number of leaders of churches who are giving some of their time to saying, I'd love to train church planters. Mm. I'd love to connect with other network leaders so that we can learn from each other Mm. and do more together than we we can do on our own. Mm. And we're here to just facilitate. That's it, really and to enable, um, but we're not seeking to build our own thing. So you can't join the London Project. You can't pay. There's no subscription. It's not something you have to, um, to, to, to subscribe to. We're just saying, can we help build healthy gospel churches to reach London? And if we have a small part to play in what God is already doing in the city through many other workers and ministries, and we'd love to be a part of that. Sensational. Having uh, been in London for the last 25 years or so, there is no one else doing this that I know of who is seeking to bring people together. And you do find, on the other hand, that there is a terrible silo mentality in which you will find the tragic side of isolation is that it saps fight. And there is a a saying, Mark Jackson of Inspire St. James said to me about five years ago, and it's been ringing in my ears ever since, he said, uh, in London we are alone together. Mm. We are always surrounded by people, and they are always strangers. Mm. And you learn, you learn that's normality. Mm. And trying to assimilate with people so you can get to know them, you you can take it on. Mm. And before you know it, you, you think, uh, uh, on what side am I on? <laughs> am I pushing? And I love the fact that you're trying to bring people together. I can think of characters in, in my own life who've, uh, who've just said, oh, well, you've got something, and, and then uh, open a door, and you think, well, it changed my life. Yes. It's not like Ken Brownell. He's just yes. being a friend, and yep. I think changes everything. And much like that guy who came and knocked on your door when you were in the halls in Bethnal Green and said, do you want to come to church? And you'll see, frankly, anyone could have done it. And you're saying... You, can, did you know there's a church down the road? Um, do you have you met the guy? Oh, I, I know a guy who might be able to. Have you met that guy? Someone who can do that in London potentially could make a, it could be a beautiful thing. 
And what's exciting also is it's not just utilitarian. It's not just, well, it's better than nothing. This comes from the gospel. Yeah. It's interesting if I use the word, because fr- frankly, what you're describing there, it could just define generosity. Well, that's interesting, because the gospel is all about that. Mm-hmm. And what you're describing there is we just want to, <laughs> we want to help people to tell people about this great free message. Yeah, I think we use, I use three gospel convictions that I think move us in this direction. So I sometimes say, if you look at a city, the churches and the relationships between the churches, you can understand them as somewhere on a spectrum of five C's. So on the left-hand side, shall we say, is competition, where everyone else is a rival and any new church is a threat. So it's competition. That can describe relationships between churches in a city. Move along and you might go from competition to coexistence. And I think that's probably what you've just described and probably the reality in London is we sort of tip our hats to other tribes and networks, but we've no intention of talking with each other or in any way connecting. Yeah, we just siloed. We're yeah. like tra- lanes of traffic. Stay in your lane, we might say on the motorway and heavy traffic. Just stay in your lane in, uh, and that's what we're about. So you can go from competition to coexistence, which is a little bit healthier, and that's not necessarily for sinister reasons. People no. are just busy. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Sometimes there's there's just a need for someone to come and help the connections to happen. But from competition to coexistence, from coexistence to communication, communications where churches start to at least meet each other and to share something about what they're about in in the city. So ministers fraternals might serve that function within a borough, perhaps of London, an occasional gathering of evangelicals across the spectrum so from competition to coexistence to communication where you not merely acknowledge but you say good for you and let's pray for each other and have a sandwich and go then from communication to some form of cooperation so things like a passion for life will sometimes bring churches together in the short term to work for a time um, on a project or uh, and, and so on but what we're really saying is that, that the gospel takes you on a journey from competition to coexistence to communication to collaboration through to uh, sorry to through to cooperation through to what we then say is the other end of the spectrum, which is collaboration. Mm. And collaboration is really where you start to intentionally work for the good of other churches and other networks. So you say, I pray and I will work for the good of that other tribe. Mm. And that's collaboration. Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful thing when we see it at work in the life of a city. And I think there are three gospel values that can move you, nudge you across that, uh, through into that. The first one is compassion. And what I mean by that is essentially the compassion that Jesus had. He saw the lostness of the lost and he prayed for workers. What did he do as a result of seeing the lostness of the lost? He told his disciples, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers. And we can't limit that to people who think exactly what I think or are part of my network. We need to say, Lord, whoever you want to bring to this city, that more people might hear, that more people might believe, that more there might be more people in heaven, would you bring gospel workers to London, wherever they come from around the world? So there's a, a compassion compels us, I think, to greater collaboration. So it's good news for me if there's a new church down the road that's reaching people I can't reach because they're of a different ethnicity, culture, language. And I want to help them if I can. So there's there's the sense of compassion for the lost, and I think that that is the driver for me in why I've given my time to the London Project, 
is here's a city of nine million people. If maybe through just some of the connections and facilitating of collaboration, we might see more churches planted, healthier churches, reaching more people. I'm happy to play that role because it's for the lost of the lostness of the lost. It's that there might be other people knocking on people's doors. I don't. I didn't deserve that. Mike should knock on my door when he did, and I think to myself sometimes. What if he'd never knocked on my door? Mm. What if he'd never asked? Where would I be now mm. but for that person? So so that uh, sense of compassion for the lost is a driver for me because I think I was this close to never hearing of Jesus. And there's nine million people in this city, many of whom have no prospect of hearing of Jesus. So I want to see more workers in the city, and I don't care where they come from. I don't care exactly where they are in an evangelical spectrum, as long as they are gospel people, mm. I want them to flourish. Right. And that leads to both generosity, therefore, compassion then compels you to be generous. And there's that other 938 in the Bible. We perhaps know the Matthew 938, which is because of the lostness of the lost, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out workers. Uh, but Mark 938 is where the disciple John returns to Jesus and says, Lord, we saw someone casting out a demon in your name and we told him to stop. Why? John says, because he was not one of us. Mm. And here's a disciple of Jesus quite proudly telling Jesus we're stopping ministries mm. in this place because they don't belong to us. Yeah. And Jesus rebukes him. Mm. And uh, Ryle's expository thoughts on, on the Gospel of Mark J.C. Ryle says, is your neighbor warring against Satan? That's the test. And if he is, well, we must applaud his work and commend him. And Ryle says better a thousand times that the work should be done by others than not done at all. Gosh, dear. That's powerful. And so compassion, generosity, and humility mm. that says, I can't reach London on my own. And our tribe, we can't do this. Hmm. I've said enough. <laughs> it's funny, you, you remind me of something which Ken Brownell said to me years ago, which has uh, made a, a deep impression on me. He said he, he thinks a lot of young guys do not initiate. Young pastors, young planters do not initiate for fear of what the old guys would mm -hmm. say. I'm a reformed evangelical, and, and I love expository ministry, and I love... And that's what I'd be about if I were in a pulpit. Mm -hmm. But I also recognize that God is using others in the city who don't necessarily share some of my convictions or come from my tribe. The church has to say no one can reach London on their own. This is now such a big and a diverse city. That's the new thing. Everyone's kind of waking up to the fact that diversity is compelling us to collaboration i've got to start to connect with churches and and ethnicities you know if now the the black majority church and the african church are the number one church planters in in a london which they are and the church the future of the church is definitely african in london then i need to be connecting with those leaders yeah. and learning from them as well as also maybe trying to offer some help where I can. Mm -hmm. At least connecting, developing friendships with people with whom friendships haven't been developed. My dad spoke at an event with a, a night of prayer, 
at the Excel Center, 40,000 wow. African people yeah. at a night of prayer. Interestingly, reflecting on it, I thought if there had been 40,000 non-African people praying at the Excel Center, I wonder if it actually might have made the news. Hmm. I doubt it. But hmm. the fact is it would have been newsworthy. Yeah. And uh, my last question would be, um, and this sounds grandiose, but I, I ask everyone, so feel at peace. Uh, what's your advice? We've talked about the isolation and the experience that many pastors and congregations, of course, but but we're talking primarily in this conversation, I think about leaders, feel that sense of, of loneliness and isolation. And my strong encouragement is to look for friends. Mm. So sometimes we go it alone and we put on a brave face. What we need is is a is a friend yes yes so true it's fascinating to hear carl truman who i think anyone who knows anything about carl truman would say he's not a soft guy he's a rugby playing as he's shaved his head now he's a he's not a he's not a nice man <laughs> <laughs> that's because he's from my part of the world he's from the midlands originally yeah, from gloucestershire <laughs> isn't he but he's uh but i was interested to hear him having read the books on church history saying He's fascinated to have seen how throughout church history the subject of friendships has been so important, so significant. He's looked at Luther and Melanchthon and their friendship and how it tempered the directions of their lives and affected them. I was fascinated to hear him come to that conclusion, not based on his own intuition, but from the material. I was fascinated from the sources. You've got a conference coming up um, in, uh, what is that, in three weeks' time? May the 25th to 27th. It's a hybrid in the sense of some will gather in person at uh, Inspire St. James Clerkenwell. So we hope if people are in the London area or certainly within the UK, you're very welcome to come in person. We'll have all the social distancing and COVID compliance in place. Um, But a lot of the material will come through Tim Keller and Alan Hirsch, who will be joining us via Zoom, although there will be quite a bit of in-person content too. And then people around Europe, so it's a city-to-city Europe and London Project joint conference. So there'll be hubs around Europe as people gather maybe in Hamburg or in Paris or in Oslo or whatever else it it might be. And um, we're looking to encourage each other in the gospel. We're trying to think about how to love and serve our cities in particular so as I say, Tim Keller will speak and, and, and Alan Hirsch and European voices will, will also be present. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, it's been fantastic to have this time with you. Thank, thank you so you, much, Neil. And thank you so much for coming to our town uh, and with, with these priorities. And I look forward to seeing what it does and to benefiting from it. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast, And for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.